0: Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. Twenty percent of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly well With All.
1: Under the radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered.
2: I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, a controversial name change for a national organization, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court's confusing ruling on ICE, and how an attack on an L.A. street vendor is reverberating throughout the country. We discuss the latest Latinx news happening locally and nationwide. Later in the show, the women who took Rosie the Riveter's slogan to heart, they did do it.
1: While all the girls attend the favorite cocktail bar, sip and dry martinis, lunch and caviar. There's a girl that's really putting them to shame. Rosie is her name. One
2: local event is honoring and uncovering the history of the women who left housework for labor jobs at the Charlestown Navy Yard during World War II. But first, joining me in the studio, Julio Ricardo Varela, co-host of the In the Thick podcast, Latino USA contributor and founder of Latino Rebels. Welcome back, Julio. Hey, Callie. Glad to have you. And also with me, Irene Mata the Barbara Morris Casperson Associate Professor of Humanities and Associate Professor of Women's and Gender Studies at Wellesley College. Hello again, everyone. Hi, Callie. <laughs> uh, I'm so glad to have both of you because we have a lot of meaty topics to dive into. First, the... Legislature just made a, well, a big move, uh, actually, with regard to the English-only education in Massachusetts. This is a, an issue that's been going around and around for some time. State Senator Jeffrey Sanchez has been working hard to change this. The bottom line is that there was at one time bilingual education in Massachusetts. It went to English-only, a kind of immersion that was supposed to force English language learners to learn English but in English, so they really couldn't follow because they knew Spanish, and it wasn't difficult. Or any other language. Any it, other wasn't language. An, it wasn't it was just tough. Spanish, right? Yes. California and Arizona were states that had also uh, gone this way. California has since uh, retracted that, and now Massachusetts has done the same. To be clear... The policy that says that uh, you must teach bilingual education is not happening here. What they're allowing now is flexibility mm-hmm. for the schools to do this. So wanted to get both of your takes on this. Julio, you're smiling.
1: Well, I, <laughs> you know, my previous career, I was working in Boston as a, the head of ESL Bilingual for, for a publishing company a pu- in, based out of New England. And so I, I remember this. Like in 1999, 2000, I would be like— you know, why are you doing this? The demographics are showing the research that was coming out of California and out of the Southwest. And I would go out to California and talk to like districts and saying like the best way to teach English language learners is a combination of their primary language and and sort of English and teaching content in, in, in their native language actually got them to think and actually make the connections. And the research was clear. And to see Massachusetts, liberal Massachusetts, like turn the corner in 2002, there's no surprise that the the Commonwealth has such an issue with ELL right now, with English language learners, some of the lowest performing student population in in the Commonwealth. I mean, look at Senator uh, Chang Diaz, who said um, the testing was was there. It's not working. The research is there. It's proven. I said in 2002 demographics are changing in this in in this state and this is a mistake and it took 15 years Callie for like lo- legislators to finally wake up to this reality this is a great great moment for edu- education in the commonwealth
2: so arene um the problem for a lot of the english language lear- learners was that they couldn't get the concepts because they're trying to figure out, well, what are you saying to me, you know? Right, and so now there's some flexibility in going back. Speak a little bit more about the advantages of having this flexibility. Um,
0: well, I think one of the things that uh, Julio brings up is, is this gap that we now have of, of 15 years. And and for one one of the things that makes me really sad is the children we lost along the right. way. Because we know that if you put a child who doesn't speak the dominant language in a classroom, um, they're at at a disadvantage from the very first day. Not allowing them to understand concepts, to learn at their pace, and to learn the language while they're learning the concepts is, I think, um, a, a real disservice right, to their education. Um, I think a lot about like my own education. I grew up in West Texas in El Paso, and I grew up in a time where bilingual education was the norm. Mm -hmm. Um, So many of my community, you know, where our first language was Spanish. And so when we went to school, our schools understood that even though we were in the U.S., many of us had been raised with Spanish as our first language. And so there was this real kind of concerted effort to figure out how do these kids learn? How can we help them learn English but at the same time allow them to stay on top of the curriculum that we're trying to teach them? And so it was it was very effective in the ways in which we would we would sit in a classroom and our teachers would speak to us in Spanish and at the same time we would go home with these uh, English lessons, that then we would also teach our parents. So it felt very organic. It never felt like we were being targeted. It never felt like we were somehow different. And, you know, as someone who was a Spanish speaker from the very beginning, to go into a school, to be slowly immersed in English... You know, by the time I learned English, I was also, like, such an advanced reader in Spanish that that helped me be an advanced reader in English. So it's no surprise that one of the things that I loved most, which was reading, which is why I became a literature professor, that started with my love of books that was never something that I was made to be ashamed of, right? that I didn't have to feel shame for reading in Spanish, that it was, oh, this is really good, you love to read. Okay, so now let's introduce you to English reading too. And it can happen simultaneously, and it can happen in a way that empowers students to not feel ashamed of their own language and cultural background, but also to become active learners to embrace English in a way that feels powerful and not something that's being kind of uh shove down their right. Throat.
1: And, and right and these students want to learn English. Absolutely. Like like that's another big myth of all this. And especially with this what what happened 15 years ago is like, oh no, they're not gonna learn you know they're not learning English and we're just gonna create this subclass of monolingual kids. It's like what what's happened, what what's different about it, Kelly, is that you lost the opportunity. And what what Inena says is like These are young kids that come with a different knowledge of being bilingual. We all know that being bilingual is going to make you more money. It's going to, you know, I I grew up in, I was born in Puerto Rico bilingually. And I I thank myself every day that I'm a native speaker and a native English speaker because I've, I've, my career has, it's earned me more as a bilingual speaker. So the fact that the Commonwealth doesn't like lost that opportunity, that I'm, that lost generation of 15 years, which we're talking about, that's a K-12 student like that's not someone who's just here for 3 days like that that kid might not get into college because of what what the what Massachusetts like fell into sort of this hysteria of the English only movement that came in the late 90s um and even in California California like is woken up like perfect example there are so many anglo english speaking kids now in California immersion spanish schools that it's seen as a cachet go to the bay area go to San Francisco where you have like suburban parents sending their kids to spanish immersion classes at K5 because they have to learn spanish in california
2: well there's a couple of points i wanted to make um our managing editor of the of the K12 uh, education desk is bianca vasquez tones and she pointed out that this is not everybody's feeling like in other words n- nobody made this change because they were feeling like it's time there's actually hard data yeah, um so <laughs> just, real, we need to it's be it's clear about decade. that been, um that that
1: that's important that there's much data to show this this is and just, one of the things yeah. i think people don't understand yeah. and, and irina coming from west texas um texas is actually probably the only state in this country that continues to have bilingual like you would think in a state like texas where where the politics like people would be like english only like it's been you know God bless Texas because the bilingual education movement came out in the 60s and the 70s for, you know, students like Irene who are like – like and these you go down to Texas now, all the everyone's bilingual. It's great.
2: Well, I have to say I, – I can say nothing but, but good things about uh, being bilingual. Um, both my niece and nephew – I don't have children – are uh, – bilingual. My nephew's a little bit trilingual, so my my niece speaks Spanish. I do not. (laughs) Um, And my nephew speaks Japanese. And and they're both fluent in both of those languages and moving toward others. And I, I can't you know, say enough about, you know, the richness of their, how their lives have been enriched right. by by being able to do that so and, we can see that.
0: And even thinking, uh-huh. like, biologically, mm-hmm. what we know happens when students, when children learn more than one language and the brain connectors that get created, right, that don't get created in monolingual learners. I, I mean, we have all of this science that not only talks about, like, why it benefits the child. But also, like what it really does to our brains Mm. and how it rewires our brains in ways that are much more sophisticated and make us better learners.
2: Yeah, well, we'll see. I, 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 you know, I'm really interested to see, you know, public acceptance because Mm. what changed it in the past, the past 15 years ago, was a public move. So Mm -hmm. I'm interested to see how that'll be. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are Julio Ricardo Varela of the Futuro Media Group and Irene Mata of Wellesley College. And we're talking about Latinx news you may have missed. Let me move on to the uh, Supreme Judicial Court's ruling about the ICE detainment. Okay, so this is um, uh,
1: like—the
2: basis is, they said, uh, Massachusetts law enforcement cannot be uh, forced by federal folks, that being ICE, to detain people on civil crimes Mm -hmm. issues, you know, whatever. Um, But it's a little confusing, yeah, (laughs)
1: Leo. Well, it's a certain—like— the ruling came out last week and it was I think it's actually the first real ruling by a state court against this whole sanctuary city, Donald Trump, Jeff Sessions, you know, ICE movement that's going on in this country. But basically what it comes down to there's certain detainers. So basically I, I don't know what people know, but let's say let's say I am a undocumented immigrant and I get arrested in Massachusetts and I'm in a county jail and it could be for anything, you know, robbery, whatever, and I'm charged and I'm arraigned and um, I get released. But what ICE does sometimes is they'll create these detainers, which aren't necessarily arrest warrants. They actually aren't. They're just like a request to pick this person up because we want to remove them from the country. Um, If you look at the Supreme Court against Arizona SB 1070 and the rulings there, and that's what the Massachusetts State Court uh, brought up. That type of detainer, that it's not a criminal detainer, and it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't. You know, ICE can't tell anyone in in Massachusetts that we want to pick this person up. Like, if this is ICE's problem, like they want, then go get them and remove them. So the Massachusetts, you know, the Superior Court just basically said that law enforcement doesn't have to honor this. And it's certain detainers. It doesn't, mean, and this is the biggest misperception that people have. It doesn't mean that local law enforcement is not cooperating with federal officials. For ser- like, look what happened in East Boston when you know when when things happen. You know, local law enforcement officials like cooperate with the federal with federal law enforcement, but it, it is a little bit of confusing because it, it totally leads into the whole like. Trump, you know, liberal Massachusetts, political courts. And if you notice what. And one of the headlines says gives legal cover to sanctuary cities. That's the Boston Globe. Which is Globe. Not
2: true. So I'm just, you know, that's why I'm, it's a little bit. I'm sorry. Bit, I wouldn't yeah. hit with it yeah. because I'm, <laughs> I'm
1: not passionate about this at all.
2: Um, um, Irani, before you say anything, I just want to point out that they say in their ruling that honoring a detainer uh, would constitute an arrest and that's what and there's yes. no law that right. according to them that allows Massachusetts law enforcement officials to, to arrest the, someone to for an immigration right. violation exactly. that right. needs to come from the legislature that has to come from, that's what from from they're from saying exactly. all right so Irene? Um, so I think
0: one of the things that's interesting about this uh, this ruling is that it's re- it's making a very clear distinction between what is a civil matter um, and a criminal matter, right. um, and I think that's that's different than the ways oftentimes we think about immigration um, because we've been conditioned to think about undocumented immigrants as just you know lawbreakers and right. and and that their presence in the country is a criminal act. Um, and I said so I'm interested in the ways in which the ruling kind of is complicating that for us. Um, I agree that it it's all it's saying is that that law, Massachusetts law enforcement doesn't have the power to do this. It doesn't mean that they don't choose to do this, right. and yeah. they do this all the time, right? Like there's a very strong connection between state law enforcement and federal law enforcement, um, and so that's that's not necessarily the case. And I think that what what happens is that it gets overblown and it becomes this whole thing of like, oh, Massachusetts, oh, all these liberals. Um, but I also think it's it sends. An interesting message nationally because you have you have this attack on sanctuary cities, and there are a lot of um, mayors and governors who do want to create sanctuary cities within um, their state borders. And so this Massachusetts ruling will give them something, right, to kind of hold on to or like maybe grab parts of for their own cases. Because this is I think this is gonna be a continuing, you know, legal matter. You know, Sessions is really coming on strong against sanctuary cities. And so at this point, like what do we have legally that we can hold on to? And so while we know that state agencies are working with federal agencies. You know, what happened, I think the case in San Antonio is such a perfect example of the cooperation that happens between state agencies and ICE. You know, when they found that trailer with those undocumented immigrants that were dying and dead, Mm -hmm. Texas, the the police, the San Antonio Police Department called ICE. Right. They didn't have to call ICE, Mm -hmm. right? But that's already... It's already a part has. of the, the system. The system now. Yeah, it's or, already yeah. in place. But the
1: point being is, you mentioned Jeff Sessions, and and just to inform people, like both President Trump was in Long Island on Friday talking about the El Salvadorian gang members, yeah. and 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 Sessions is in El, was in El Salvador, and the White House is talking about MS13, right. and sanctuary sittings member. are are yeah. causing all this. Right. So they're presenting this issue of like. Every immigrant is an MS-13 gang member, right? right? Where we know that, and so, so that's what they're saying, that sanctuary cities are, are making everyone unsafe, which we know is statistically not true. It's, it's completely false, and it's a lie, but that's what the White House is doing. So the fact that you have the Massachusetts court saying, whoa, 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 immigration is a civil, is a civil matter. It's not a criminal matter, and you guys have some issues. You can't just pick anybody up, ICE, and we're not going to honor it because it's a civil issue. And those type of facts get lost in this entire debate, and they get politicized. So it's I think it's an important thing to keep reminding people that there. Well, I think facts it's a involved. couple of
2: things. It's it's con- it's a little confusing for people who are you know not paying attention to all the nuances because a lot of change as to both of your points has happened in a few. Short months, right. really. Um, so I also hear the Supreme Judicial Court saying this is we're narrowing the focus. So now if you want to do something else, legislature, federal government, whatever, you got to then do something yes. that we can respond to. Because right now what you're doing is all over the place. And we're saying this is what you can and this is what you cannot exactly. do. So there is that. And to your point, Julio, about uh, the criminalization of a lot of uh, undocumented immigrants, um and and what ICE is doing and, and its position in, in picking up everybody who allegedly has, you know, done some horrible crime. Now, general public is saying that's not true. We have clear examples here in Massachusetts where people have lived their lives, built a family, been undocumented. You can disagree deported. or not, but they, have, they are not uh, picked up for criminal activity. They're, not. They're picked mm-hmm. up because this new ruling by Jeff Sessions says everybody needs to be picked up. Mm-hmm. You can say... Well, you're originally illegal. You're here illegally. Okay, so be picked up. That's You, you can say that, and that's uh, certainly a part of this. Um, but what's unclear with all the detainers is who are they picking up, and it used to be that people who were criminally um, um, charged, those were the folks, but now it's unclear. So what the Supreme Judicial Court said, make it clear. That's all we're doing. We're saying right. mm-hmm. make it clear. If yeah. you want to do something, make it clear. All right, so let me move on to this, which is very interesting. Um, I'm always fascinated when people do a name change. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, this just caught my attention. Uh, The former National Council of La Raza has um, revealed or unveiled its uh, new name. And they said because they were responding to the ways that the organization had been characterized by others and somehow the name um, was a part of that because I guess La Raza – Loosely translated means race, but they meant it to be community. We could have an hour, hour okay.
1: about right. the use of raza. All right, okay. <laughs> We're
2: not doing that. So let me first uh, let you hear from the National Council of La Raza president and, well, formerly, and CEO Janet Mugia speaking to the audience at the annual conference of the NCLR in Arizona earlier this month. And the new name of the organization is Unidos U.S.,
0: when we come together there's no limit to what we can accomplish now is the time for us to come together because united unidos we can build a society where all of us no matter what we look like how we pray where we come from or how our sexuality is expressed can live worship work and pursue happiness as equals unidos We can change the arc of history and bend it towards justice.
2: So, Irina, she's selling it. I want to know if you're buying it.
0: (laughs) So I think for me it's a little bit difficult because as someone who studied um, the Chicanx and the Latinx civil rights movements, there's a a lot of power to the terminology, la raza, and what it comes out of. Um, I also think that saying that Unidos... us, U.S., um, you know, brings us together, that negates the fact that for many people, la raza, the term la raza also brought us together, right? Mm. There was a a terminology of how do we as a community mobilize? How do we come together? um, Not necessarily always putting aside our differences, like being cognizant of those differences, but still working towards a common goal, right? Working together towards something better for our community. Uh, So... I have a harder time necessarily buying um, into the name change, but again, that's because I have a much stronger investment in that history and where that word comes from um, and I don't how think it you're comes alone. about. I think other people have different no, reasons. And, and, and NCLR, yeah, yeah.
1: The, the history of NCLR, <laughs> La Raza came out of La Raza, the you know, the Chicanx Chicano movement. But what's interesting about this is the other point that... Um, and I know Janet Murguia very well, and I've actually have asked her very tough questions, so there's nothing that I'm saying here that has not been uh, publicly stated before. This whole issue of, like, young people aren't connecting with the largest, you know, Latino Mm -hmm. civil rights organization in the the country that has a history. That train has left the station. There's Mm -hmm. so many young, like... Grassroots organizations that kind of filled that void about ten years ago, and I, I've been covering that movement. You know, the undocumented movement, mm-hmm. the Dreamer movement, uh, the activism movement that young people now connected digitally um, don't even see NCLR. Never saw NCLR as as a powerful voice. They saw it as sort of like an establishment corporate Latino organization mm-hmm. based out of Washington. Um, so that's a big question for them as well. The big question I have for you. Callie, because I, I look at something like the you know, the organization like the NAACP.
2: Well I was gonna say like this that, is for a larger we, conversation, but this is exactly what's happening with the NAACP. So like yeah
1: there there's questions <laughs> yeah. about it. Yeah. Um I also get the this the, the, the notion from people who, who who look at the name change and kinda go, Okay, it sounds like a healthcare organization. Um, you know, Unidos US. The the bigger question is, in the time of Trump, when a word like raza like, when, when he basically started his campaign, not going after, you know, he went after Mexicans, Mexicans first, right? right? Yeah. A term like raza that has such a deep, rich history. Anyone who follows what it is to be Latino in the United States or Mexican-American in the United States or Chicano in the United States, it has such a deep history. To shy away from it now, it it, mm. it just feels a little bit like people aren't feeling it.
2: Well, I think uh, we'll be hearing about that. And and I, you know, at another time, let's have a discussion about these organizations trying to reinvent. Yeah. <laughs> if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with Julio Ricardo Varela and Irene Mata, our Latinx roundtable. We're discussing stories affecting the Latinx community here in Boston and nationwide. Um, now, I was taken with this story in Los Angeles, which, you know, people here uh, in the greater Boston area are going to say, why? Because, <laughs> because it, first of all, it's blown up hugely uh, on social media. And I think in a larger sense, we're going to talk about uh, simply what it is, is a um, uh, Benjamin Ramirez's cart. He was a vendor selling Mexican corn known as Elote. His name is Elotero. And... Another, a guy was walking by, demanded that he move his cart off the sidewalk, and when he wouldn't, there was a very nasty exchange between the two of them. Uh, Ramirez accused the guy of uh, being racist. He said he couldn't be racist because he was Argentinian. and it, but, but the bottom line was that he destroyed his cart, and, yeah. you know, it's become a big deal. So I see it as, you know, what's happening in L.A., because there's been a sort of— um, across-the-board attack on vendors, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of those are Latino, so mm-hmm. let's be clear about that. And But it's also a part of the bigger picture of some of the... Um, well, I, you can't call it a crime, but certainly hate incidents happening across the country that seem to be more prominent. As I, I heard somebody say the other day, now it seems to be OK just to be blatantly racist out in the public and mm-hmm. do whatever. Mm-hmm. So this is something that has uh, taken on uh, huge legs. Uh, there's going to be conversation in the streets because they're doing rallies. Mm-hmm. This one guy's uh, story has, has really blown up. Wanted to get your take on this Um how are you seeing it uh, reported and responded to from people across the country because it's not just an la thing I think are Yeah, right? we or, Julio yeah Latino mm.
1: USA mm. reported about it and it's a really fascinating you know Ben Ramirez if people don't know um, the the man who turned it over his name was Carlos Racas he's a musician out of um, he lives in LA he's from originally from Argentina but there's sort of a history that he was. Harassing, Caracas was harassing Cramidas, and then leave it to uh, you know a mom and a, pa- a mom to, or a pa- dad to say like next time just take out your phone and tape them, hmm. right? So you got to give it up for ben- Benjamin Cramidas, who's like I'm not putting up with this anymore, and he taped it, and the mother the mother put it up on Facebook. Uh it was like. At At night in LA, and by the time people woke up on the East Coast, it had like five million views. So, you know, it it, it really resonated with people, and it resonated for a couple of reasons. Not only the issues of class and race within the Latin American community, which again, another hour could be spent on that, but the issues of gentrification. If you know anything you know about LA right now, and even in Boston, you know, this is where there's movements, the, the city's changing. So, in Boyle Heights, which is perhaps the most Mexican American, like traditionally Mexican American neighborhood in los angeles there's a huge anti-gentrification movement right now going on and ben you know ben is like is sort of that symbol and in addition legalizing street vendors in in los angeles the whole issue of of permits and the fact that there's plenty of people like you know this happened in hollywood so there's plenty of like you know Hollywood hipsters who get their elote from Benjamin. He's loved. Like people are like, don't mess with my street vendor. That's where I get my my elote, my 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 chicharrones, and I get things. And like you're messing with. They just. It was the wrong person to be messed with, and and Benjamin just, and and the community's responded. He's gotten money for his equipment back, and and what people don't know is these are handmade carts. Like this is some like so this is a so tradition this, this is a culture it, I mean, they really this just, is a livelihood yeah. um the good you know, it's really raised a light on like how people treat the street workers and 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 it's and what a part, does this mean, and and largest, does this mean? Yeah, it's a fabric right. of the city
2: right so and we should be clear that um there's been a lot of confusion about you know vendors illegal street vendors illegal or not um you can get a citation right. um, but it is but it's that's it um uh, right. for it was having it decriminalized a, right exactly recent mm-hmm. very recently mm-hmm. though
0: because before it was considered a criminal right, right to sell uh food on the street and it, you know i think one of the things that's also really interesting about this case is that uh bahami I mean, this has been very open about the fact that he was able to call the police, right, because the police were called. Um, mm. He wasn't afraid to do that because he's not undocumented. Right? A lot of street vendors don't necessarily have um, authorizing papers. And so when they're attacked, when they're victims of these types they of, have of harassment, absolutely, oh, they, they've been, they've absolutely.
1: Been, they don't call, right? It
0: happens because people assume,
1: mm-hmm. right,
0: that that if they do something to these street vendors, they're going to get away with it, and they do. They yeah. get away with it, yeah. right? And so I think that that what's happened with this case is that it's a reminder for a lot of people of the violence that street vendors um, face on a daily basis. Um, and I think it, for those of us who may not live in LA, for people who aren't necessarily familiar with street food culture, um, it's also uh, educating them, right, about like what happens when. When this is your livelihood and and others feel that they're entitled to take that away from you, who dismiss your labor um, and see what you do as so meaningless right? that they can vandalize. And for um, me, it's like
2: the attacks out in the public, you know, on the street. Yeah. Um, no shame. Uh, no, no, no shame. shame. But, I, you know, it is heartening to see people push back because they have, again, the video helps people mm-hmm. to see this is really happening and it's horrible. And what
1: are we going to say? It's a mother helping her son, exactly. too. Like, I, yeah. I think people don't realize it's like the fact that they spoke out and it's like we're yeah. going to use we're going to use the power of the community to to, you know, I think they had the they're not sitting there going, oh, I want to go viral. They're right. like, this is unjust mm-hmm. and, and we're going to show and, you and we're going to show you right. and people responded. All right, I want to squeeze in. I love this
2: because um, I need something happy at the end. Uh, this is a new short film um, about uh, two uh, queer, this is the language used, I'm using the language used, uh, Latinx elders uh, who meet in a nursing home and, you know, want to get married, but uh, there's some unhappiness by one of the daughters. I want to play a clip. Uh, so in this clip, uh, Lupita... Explains to her daughter, Virginia, how her relationship to Ramona started.
0: I am the one who started sneaking into her room. Did you know about this?
1: Uh, some of our elders develop mature relationships, as long as it's consensual. They need
0: to be protected from this. I don't need your protection. You're just like you, Papa.
2: I'm marrying Ramona. Punto final. Mama, you're not a lesbiana. so the laughter of the people who are in the room for what they thought was going to be a wedding until the daughter interrupts it the film is called Amigas with Benefits and it's a 2017 PBS online film festival it's about 10 minutes long it's uh, written and directed by Adelina Anthony um, and presented by Latino Public Broadcasting and it's Really sweet and uplifting. Yeah, Renee? <laughs> yes.
0: Yes, um, You know, I love this film because it does multiple things. First of all, it makes visible um, a population we never see represented in popular culture, right? Queer, Latina, elders. Right. <laughs> um, it also makes visible the sexuality of elders, right? Because we assume that once someone becomes, you know, like older, that all of a sudden they stop being sexual beings. And, and I think that's such a disservice um, to... Um, To our elders and and it's it's told in such a a sweet kind of uh, way and one of the other thing that I really love about this film is is how uh, when she's talking to her daughter when the main character is talking to her daughter she's telling her well you know I why do you think your teacher let you get away with like making grammar mistakes and why do you think you know my neighbor we were so close and for for her daughter this is so outside the realm of possibility because she never imagined her mother first of all as a sexual being and Mm. second of all as possibly queer right and it says so much about the misconceptions we have around sexuality around women's bodies around queer Latinas Um, so it's all wrapped up in this really short like 10 minute film that that made me laugh
1: it's funny it's funny it is funny like that's what I love when you you can use humor to get to deeper issues and it was just so real and authentic and (sighs) but it's only 10 minutes long and it's online. Like, this needs to be on Netflix. Like, I want it to be a series now. Well, like,
2: you know, um, Issa Rae started on the web, so next, maybe. next that's stop how we that, That's
1: <laughs> what's up, Callie. Good point. That's what's up.
2: I want to thank both of you for joining me this week. Thank, thank you, you, Callie. <laughs> Julio Ricardo Varela is the co-host of the In the Thick podcast, a contributor to Latino USA and the founder of Latino Rebels. And Irene Maita is the Barbara Morris Casperson Associate Professor of Humanities and Associate Professor of Women's and Gender Studies at Wellesley College. Coming up, Rosie the Riveter isn't just a cultural icon. She is the symbol for the millions of women who took over the jobs left behind by men fighting in World War II. Now an event at our Charlestown Navy Yard aims to honor the legacy of these Rosies. That's up next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley.